The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you're new here, we are in the book of Daniel. We're about to finish the book, I think, next week. But we've been going through the book of Daniel. That's typically what we do is we teach through a book of the Bible, and then occasionally we'll do a topical series. But we're going through this book of Daniel where the first half of the book just tells the story of a Hebrew prophet who lived in exile and served pagan kings faithfully over and over and over. And the last half of the book goes into some prophecy that would be after the time that Daniel lived, but during the ancient world. And then today, we look at at literature that is apocalyptic in nature or aiming at the end of time. So if you're new here and coming in and this is your first time with us, maybe an interesting time for you. So I've got a question for you as we start today. And the question is this, what's your dream? What's your dream of the way the world ought to be? You remember the movie Pretty Woman, if you're old enough, with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. And at the beginning of the movie, there's this happy guy in Hollywood. And he says, welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? Everybody comes here. This is Hollywood, land of the dreams. Some dreams come true, some don't. But keep on dreaming. This is Hollywood. Always time to dream, so keep on dreaming. What's your dream? Maybe it's your dream for your little world, or maybe it's your dream for the world at large. What's your dream? What would really you define as a state of happiness for you? See, everybody, everybody has a dream for the world. The Hebrew prophets... They dreamed of a day, Cornelius Plantinga says, in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise, and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when deserts would flower, and the mountains would run with wine. Weeping would cease. People could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs would lay down with lions, and all nature would be fruitful, benign, filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, learn from God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from the valleys and the seas, from women in streets and men in ships, this webbing together of God and humanity and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. More than just peace in the Bible, it means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs where all Needs are met. See, that's what Daniel and the Hebrew prophets dreamed of. But that's not the world Daniel was living in. He had lived his life as an adult in exile. And eventually, exiled because of their sin, the Israelites would go back to their homeland, but really they kind of remained in a state of exile and others most of the time ruled over them. They were sent in exile because of their sin, but their sins couldn't be taken away. Without the Messiah, they longed for and looked to. Even today, 
those Israelites who are without Christ remain in a state of exile because they have not hoped in the Messiah who has come. See, Daniel had a dream for the world, but it's not the world he lived in because Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream for the world. And his dream for the world included Israelis in exile. And then Darius had a dream for the world. And then Bel. Teshazzar had a dream for the world. And then as you heard about Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes last week, they all had dreams of how the world ought to be. Joseph Stalin had a dream for the world. Adolf Hitler had a dream for the world. Martin Luther King had a dream for the world. And make no mistake about it, Bernie and Hillary and Ted and Donald... I'll have a dream for the world. See, the, the difference in the dreams these Hebrew prophets had and all those others is that the Hebrew prophets were dreaming of a kingdom that would never end. That was their dream. But Daniel, as he prophesies, knows that's not the way it is and that's not the way it's going to be for a little while. And then we... We look at the text and he tells about this king that has a dream for the world. Verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11 is where we are. And it says that the king shall do as he wills. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the Indignation is accomplished or until the anger is complete for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the God of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses or power instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he will load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many lands and divide the land as a payment for them. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, that's Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries And the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Well, God, we thank you for your word and for this account today. And we thank you for this reality that you have a dream for the world. 
that is coming through and you're using your Holy Spirit and your church to point us toward that day when the lion indeed will lay down with the lamb. When the nations will worship together in unity before the throne and before the lamb. So as we look at this text today, God, I pray that you would help me to teach it in a way that would honor you and that would give us hope, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, scholars for centuries have argued about what this text means and when these events take place in human history. There are two main schools of thought, though there are a few schools of thought, but two main schools of thought about this passage. And the first is this, that the king spoken of in this passage would be someone from Antiochus Epiphanes that Gary spoke of last week all the way up through about 135 A.D. You pick a wicked ruler and it might be It might be one of those rulers, and that's because of the language that's there in verse 40 about the king of the south attacking him and the king of the north, which is the same language used in last week's text when Gary was speaking about history. There's another school of thought that at the end of Gary's text, in verse 35, right at the end, it says, until the time of the end, for it still waits until it's appointed. And in verse 40, it says again, at the time of the end, this will happen. And then chapter 12 starts with, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has been in charge of your people, the archangel. And it's really pointing to the end of time. So the second school of thought is that a leap happens from the end of verse 35 to verse 36, and it's pointing to the Antichrist, the king who will rule at the end. Well, there are godly men and women on both sides of this debate. There are godly men and women who disagree strongly with one another, but they love Jesus and they love one another. This is not a text to fight over. It's a text we can learn from. So I'll tell you today, I'm going to lean toward this second school of thought. If you don't, I understand why you wouldn't. I do, and that's where we're going to head today. And we're going to look at this text as pointing to the Antichrist and really as many who have gone before him and are types of Antichrist. So this king has a dream of the way the world ought to be. And in his dream, he's in charge and he's doing whatever he wants. So our first point today is this, that his desire is idolatrous. His desire is idolatrous and his idol is himself. It says that he does as he wills. This king takes power and he just does whatever he wants. He's got power to rule over whomever he wants, however he wants, and that's what he does. He sets himself up as God. It says he exalts and magnifies himself above every God. He receives worship. He thinks he rules and reigns like the Roman emperors in ancient times who would have their faces stamped on coins, who would set up statues so that people could worship them. This man will receive worship and set himself up against every God. He will speak astonishing things against God. He'll mock Him. He'll speak as if He doesn't exist, if He's not real, if he, as, as if He can do nothing. And this king will prosper for His appointed 
time. He'll prosper for his appointed time. If you were to read in Revelation 13, you'll read that this king will be very, very popular. A lot of people will love him. They will think that he is fantastic, an amazing guy, and he'll prosper for an appointed time. Just like Nebuchadnezzar did when he thought that he reigned. Just like Darius did when he thought that he reigned. Just like Belteshazzar did until he saw the writing on the wall and realized that he, in fact, didn't actually reign. He'll prosper for his appointed time for what is decreed must come to pass. And then he'll pay no attention to God or to the Messiah. Look at verse 37. Your translation either says he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the God of his fathers or to the one beloved by women or to the desire of women. Listen, if it says the gods of his fathers, for a long time people just translated this God of his fathers. Translators wanted it to match up with other texts, and so some people translate it gods of his fathers. The reason they do is it's a Hebrew word, Elohim. It's a plural word. If you read it out of context, it means God's little g. Elohim is the proper name the Hebrews gave to God. So some people would translate it gods of his fathers. Some people would translate it God of his fathers. Neither is technically incorrect. It just depends on how you take the context. It's a Jewish context. So I tend to read it God of his fathers or the beloved by women. Well, what in the world does that mean? People say that means all kinds of things. I'm going to tell you, we know what it means. He'll pay no regard to the Messiah. Hebrew women for hundreds of years before Christ was born, before the book of Daniel is written, on through the time that Christ is born, and after that, when they spoke of the Messiah, they would call Him the beloved of women or the desire of women. Now, why in the world would they say that? It's because every mother, every Hebrew mother, her dream would be to have the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah. Wouldn't that be... An amazing thing. I mean, your kid's better than all the other kids, right, Mom? See, that's why Mary in Luke 1, is, it's said of her, blessed are you among women. He was a desire of women. This Antichrist, this wicked king, will pay no attention or give no regard to the Messiah. And here's how we kind of know that he is Antichrist. In John, or 1 John chapter 2, John says, Children, it's the last hour, and as you, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. It says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. So verse 22, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father. So let what you heard from the beginning abide 
in you. This is the promise that he made us. He tells us eternal life. So how do we know he's the Antichrist? Because he denies that Jesus is the Messiah. He gives no regard. And he says, and there are many little Antichrists. And for us, church, as we think about the Antichrist, there, there's some language that ought to give us pause. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. Some of you can think of someone who, who sat in this room Sunday after Sunday, and they don't sit here anymore. And they deny they deny that Jesus is the Christ. One of those people, I heard his name this week, used to lead in this church. Maybe it's not this church, maybe it's another, but they deny that Jesus is the Christ. And i got to tell you, I don't know if any of you tend to do this, but I, with my glasses and the way they work, there's something about them. I can see other people's sins so much more clearly than I can see my own. And I, I love these glasses. They're, they're great. It's, it can be a dangerous thing. Though. You, we think about our own sin. We think, well, that's, that's never going to be me. I mean, that's never going to be me. Listen, I, I hope it's not. I hope it's not. But that's why we don't want to treat sin lightly or the person and work of Jesus Christ lightly. See, they went out from us because they, they never were really of us. If they'd been with us, now they, they may have struggled like we all do, but they would have continued. See, we're talking about the Antichrist today, but... There are these types of Antichrist that deny that Jesus is Lord. Well, not only, not only will he not pay attention to the living God and Jesus, his son, it says he'll pay no attention to any other God. The Antichrist, ultimately, he's not going to worship Allah, though he might name that name, he's not going to worship any of the pantheon of Hindu gods, Vishnu, Krishna, Ganesh, though he might name their name. No, he's going to worship a God of power. He will pay no attention to any other God. He will magnify himself above all. He'll magnify himself above all. Now when we read things like that, sometimes people come to our mind. And I'm going to tell you that this week I was able to narrow down something about the Antichrist. You guys ready? It's a man, okay? And I, I know that because the Bible says he when it refers to him. And that's all I know. But if you Google who is the Antichrist, and listen, don't do that except for entertainment purposes, okay? <laughs> but my goodness, every former U.S. president you hated and every former U.S. president you loved, they're the Antichrist. Every Russian leader, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Hirohito, you can, I mean, you pick the flavor you want and you can convince yourself, we don't know. And what I would submit to you is this king's going to be evil. He's got a dream for the world that is not the way things ought to be. And trying to figure out who he is or when he comes is an exercise in futility and an adventure in missing the point. We've got commands from Jesus, and they're to make disciples of the nations, to love God and one another, to share the gospel and our lives with people. 
That's not what this guy is going to do. He'll worship power. Why does he worship power? Because it makes him like God. It says he'll purchase it. He will share with people, give land to people because they give him power. The Antichrist, this king, is the most consistent atheist the world has ever known. He's the most consistent atheist the world has ever known. Now, you might be in here and say, well, you, you can't say that. I'm an atheist. And what I want to say is, I'm glad you're here, but you're probably not, okay? Most people who say they're atheists aren't actually atheists, and if they are, they're not really good ones, okay? I have a friend who was talking to another friend who said he was an atheist, and he said, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't believe in God. And my friend said, well, which God do you not believe in? And he said, well, you know, the one that's angry at us, and he wants to come down and do bad things to us. And my friend said, I, I don't believe in that God either. I believe in a God who loves us. I believe in a God who revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. So if you're an atheist here today, I'm going to submit to you that you're probably not a very good one because you're probably a nice person. You probably get along with people. You're probably fairly friendly. And that's completely inconsistent with the atheistic worldview. Because in the atheistic worldview, there is no sense of final justice. And there's really no consistent reason for moral good or evil. I mean, people make arguments, but they fall apart pretty quickly. So a good atheist just tries to take over the world like this guy does. There's a show I watched in college when I should have been studying. It was called The Animaniacs. It was a cartoon, which probably makes that even worse. And one of the little sets in the Animaniacs was this group called Binky and the Brain. Anybody, anybody remember that? Shame on y'all for watching that. <laughs> and Binky would always ask Brain, Brain, what are we going to do tonight? And Brain would say what? The same thing we do every night. Try and take over the world. And that's what this consistent atheistic king is doing. If there is no God... If there is no God, the smartest thing to do is just worship power and try to get as much as you can. And that's what this guy is doing. And we as believers can, can kind of go, well, I'm not an atheist, so no, no worries, right? But I, I, wonder if, I wonder if there's a danger for us as believers where sometimes maybe we set ourselves up as God. Where really our dream for the universe really kind of puts us on sort of a throne that's not ours. Maybe, maybe it's when we say things like we see a hard text or we read something that's kind of mysterious in Scripture and we just go, I'm not, I'm not going to believe in a God like that. I, I don't know what it looks like. Maybe somebody hurts you or harmed your family and, and now they're a believer and you say, I'm not going to believe in a God that will give grace to a sinner like that. Or maybe it's, I'm not going to believe in a God who says He's Lord over my life and command me to do that. I'm not believing in a God like that. Maybe it's a God who rules and reigns over the kings and kingdoms of the earth, who's sovereign. Well, I'm not, I'm not believing in a God like that. Maybe it's a God who allows cancer, disease, or the sort of chaos the world looks to be in right now. And my, my question to you is, well, well what, if I'm, what if he's like that? 
what if, what if he is like that? And, and maybe in his wisdom knows some things that, I don't know, perhaps us as finite creatures don't. What, what if he is like that? What is your unbelief going to do? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to find yourself in opposition to the one true God, would you? Maybe in those things that we don't know or don't understand, maybe the appropriate posture would be a glad surrender to Him. See, that, that's why when, when we talk about, when we talk about our, our core values, see, we don't want to be a people who set ourselves up as God or think or act like we're God. That's why they start with surrender. And then they move to community. And then they move to mission. It's, it's because there is a, a way of living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ where God's people are serving one another in love and fulfilling the law of Christ. They're caring for one another and, and looking out for others' interests even more than their own. They're forgiving one another. They're bearing with one another. If someone's struggling, they're coming alongside and helping them come back in the fold. They genuinely care. And they want to see others flourish and know the joy that they have in Jesus. Well, that starts really with surrender to Jesus. But you can't surrender to God on your own. It has to happen in community because when you surrender to Him, He says the most important thing is to love God, and the second cycle to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's got to happen, by definition, in community. And then we as a community have a, a mission, because again, we don't think that we're God, and the mission is this, to share our lives in the gospel with the whole world. To welcome people into this beautiful way of living. Now, I don't actually think the Hebrew prophets really thought that the mountains would run rivers of Moscato down, you know. We don't want all the fish drunk, right? But they did, they did dream of a day where one race and another would see the value of the other and they would love one another and find this beautiful unity in Christ. They did dream of a day when husbands would be gentle and kind leaders in their family and and wives would be glad and kind partners to their husband. And see, that's what life looks like when we're surrendered to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in community and on mission together. That's what they dreamed of. And when we live that way, we're pointing to a kingdom different than this man's kingdom in Daniel 11. His desire is idolatrous and his dominion is international. His dominion is international. He is going to rule over many nations. Verse, verse 39, it says, He'll deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge Him, He'll load with honor. He'll make them rulers over many. And He'll divide the land as payment. And then it says, The king of the south is going to rise against Him. Now that will be to no avail. And then the king of north is going to rush upon Him like a whirlwind with many horsemen, many ships. And it says he'll come into many countries and overflow and pass through. He'll come into the glorious land. He'll overtake many and he'll kill many in Israel. It's going to be a dark 
day, his dream for the world that is outside the rule and reign of God and his Christ is an awful, awful day. There's an interesting thing in this text, though. He'll attack and he'll kill many in Israel. It says he will not overtake Edom, Moab, and most of where the Ammonites dwell. So I looked that up because I had to wonder, well, what's special about these places? And the answer is that it's modern day Jordan. It's modern day Jordan. So you can see there's, there's the Sea of Galilee and then there's the kingdom of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And if you look then, that's, that's modern day Jordan. Ammon, Moab, and Edom. That's modern day Jordan. So Ammon, Moab, and Edom, he's not going to overtake them. That's modern day Jordan. I, I don't know why. I, I have no clue why. I can tell you two things I do know that interest me about modern day Jordan, but I don't know if this is why he's not going to overtake them, okay? One is that about four years ago, a movement to Jesus began in Jordan that has been pretty amazing, where people are trusting Jesus, they're getting multiplying small groups, and they're sharing the gospel with their friends, and then their friends are getting saved, and then they're multiplying again, and then eventually you've got a little church, and then this church is multiplying and multiplying and multiplying, and now there are literally thousands of people following Jesus in Jordan. It's been a beautiful thing to see. It's spread over a little bit into Syrian refugees, but but not in the way it has in Jordan. And I'm not talking about these hokey things you see on the internet where 50,000 people came to Christ in a night because the Benny Hinn of Central Asia was there. What I'm, what I'm talking about is that people are sharing the gospel with their friends and their families and they're being baptized and changing the way that they live and following Jesus. That's one thing that piques my interest and the other is that Jordan's king, Abdullah, is a bad man. You just don't mess with him. He, he leads bombing runs against ISIS present day. And I don't mean as king that he says to his pilots, you go and strike ISIS. I mean, he gets in an airplane and leads the way. Those are two things that interest me. To be honest with you, that's kind of a rabbit to chase. I have no clue if that's why this guy won't overtake Jordan. But I know that he won't because the Scripture says that he won't. However, he will overtake Egypt. He will overtake Egypt. Here's what the Scripture says about that. He'll stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold, of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt. There should be a period after that, not a comma on your slide. Then the Libyans and Cushites will follow his train. An ancient king's train was his glory. You might remember from Isaiah 6 when there's the vision of God the king. Isaiah said the train of his robe was filling the temple. The greater the king, the longer his train. It was a symbol of glory. And so the people of Libya and the people of Cush or modern day Sudan are going to follow this guy's train. They are going to worship Him. They are going to believe He's great and amazing. He'll have, he'll have a dominion that's international. It will involve the Middle East and North Africa. But then something happens. It says He will be alarmed by news in the east and the north. 
He'll be alarmed by news in the east and the north. And people see that and they say, well, the news is going to come from Babylon or modern-day Iraq or it's going to come from Persia, modern-day Iran or the north. That's always Russia. Or it could be one of those many, many other countries between Israel and Russia in the north. We don't know. We just don't know. And you know what the greatest thing to do is when you don't know something? It's to say, we don't know. We just don't know. Exercise in futility to try to figure that out. But it's going to alarm him. And when it does, he's going to get mad and show his true colors and kill a lot of people in a lot of places. His dream for the world is a horrible one. And then it says he's going to set up his headquarters in modern day Israel. It's between the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, and the Holy Mountain where the Dome of the Rock sits right now. Somewhere between those two places. He's going to set up his headquarters, his palatial tents, verse 45 says. And then there's this beautiful phrase that ends our text. It says, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. His destruction is inevitable. His destruction is inevitable. And we, we know that because as we've read through the book of Daniel, we've seen kind of a wash, rinse, and repeat of a king rises up, he thinks he rules and reigns, then his kingdom comes to an end, and usually he dies shortly thereafter or right as it comes to an end. But we don't have to really actually just look in the book of Daniel to see this by definition, kingdoms fail, and this guy's kingdom will fail There's hope for us in that, but there's also something to learn. If you are putting your hope in any other kingdom than the kingdom of God, you've got a misplaced hope. If you're putting your hope in any other kingdom than the kingdom of God, any geopolitical entity, any leader other than Jesus Christ, it's a kingdom that's going to fail because by nature they do. See, when when Jesus comes back to rule and reign, He won't set up headquarters in the Oval Office. That's not where His kingdom will be run from. Kingdoms fail, and this guy's kingdom will fail. And this ought to offer us a whole lot of hope. It ought to offer us a whole lot of hope. Because the the reality is, those Hebrew prophets, see, their dreams are going to come true. The things they spoke of, some have come about in Jesus and others will come about in Jesus. You might turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why have such a sure hope in such a screwed up world? It's because Jesus is risen from the dead. See, I tell you, brothers, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. That's a resurrection body. 
This, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He will come to his end with none to help him. See, there was another king in the Middle East, and people thought he had come to his end, and no one was going to help him. He was hung on a tree and crucified, and all of his followers ran away. And those Jewish leaders and those Roman soldiers, they just looked and laughed. He thought he was going to take over the world. And he came to his end on Friday, and there was no one to help him. But see, Sunday morning came. And the stone was rolled away and Jesus Christ had a bodily resurrection from the dead and it will not defeat Him ever and because of that reality, if you're in Christ, it won't defeat you either. So you can hope though kingdoms around us are going to fail, the kingdom of God never will. So what do we do? What do we do? We put our hope in the King, and we aim our life toward the kingdom that will never fail. We live in glad surrender and community and mission because God didn't spare His own Son, but He gave Him freely for us all. And He rose from the dead as the first signpost of a new creation, a new kingdom that's coming, and He'll reign forever. Well, God, we thank You for this reality that the nations rage and ultimately this evil king will rage and seek to do as he wills. He will be the ultimate idolater. And though this world is broken, this brokenness with this idolatrous kingdom will come to an end and Jesus will reign. So God, let us live toward that day loving people, and declaring Jesus is Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.